Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hey guys, how's it going? Freelance writer and critic for Nehru. Hello, hello, everyone. We're going to be talking in a few minutes about Last Night in Super. We actually have a film fight this week. If you want to look at our Edgar Wright retrospective, you can check it out from earlier in the year where we cover all his films. This is now we are completionists, so we are covering Last Night in Soho. We also be touching on Palm Door Winter Titan, which we covered in brief during the Sydney Film Festival and is in cinemas now. Before we do that, we want to talk quickly about news of the week. The British Film Festival closes tonight, so it's your last chance to catch it. The Italian Film Festival continues around the country. The Japanese Film Festival screens until Sunday night. The Scandinavian Film Festival was now in full swing. It was rescheduled. Static Vision kicks off their Dreamscapes Festival tonight through to Sunday night at Pink Flamingo Cinema. The Made in the West Film Festival is screening on Saturday in Liverpool, and you have a few tickets left, and you get all those details on festivest.com. Now, talking about... The big film of the week, which is Last Night in Soho. It is the sixth film from Edgar Wright, I think it's correct. And it is starring Thomason McKenzie, Andrew Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, Diana Rigg in her last film, Terrence Stamp and Sam Claffin. Now, this is about a night in Soho set now, but also ostensibly in the 1960s. Through the perspective of the main character, we visit both times and we learn about how events in both times affect each other and the impact of things like dreams and nostalgia. Yeah, there's a little bit of a time travel thing going on with our main character living in the present, staying at this guest house where every time she sleeps, she's uh, Thomas and McKenzie before, but she sees herself through mirrors in the film's one biggest and best visual trick as Anya Taylor-Joy, aspiring starlet in the 60s, uh, constantly dancing at clubs as she's trying out on the social scene to become the next big thing. The two are linked. Things go wrong in the 60s. Thomas and McKenzie tries to investigate in the present. How will the stories tie into each other? For the record, Thomas and McKenzie is an art school student and she's obsessed with 60s nostalgia, which ties into the themes of the film very strongly. Me and Virat have some words and thoughts on this, but uh, Glenn approached it from almost the complete opposite perspective to us. So a, a little bit think? of a qualifier on that. I'm going to talk because I'm a critic, and I think as all the others, about what I didn't like of this film, with the caveat that I didn't enjoy it. I do think of Edgar Wright's narrative features, I do think it's my least favourite. Wow, okay. When we we just came out of it, you seemed like you were in a little bit of a buzz, but I guess... uh, I liked it. I'm saying he's a director of a very high standard. So I'm going to talk mostly about the things I didn't like, but I did, on balance, really enjoy this film. I would recommend it. I had a good time. I love the approach it takes to an era that we typically deify, but it has very negative aspects to nostalgia. I like the creative ways in which, particularly as Chris mentioned with God's Mirrors, but that dreams represented and how using practical effects that you can move in this film as you might typically through a dream where things turn very quickly and you can change perspectives and change positions and change where you are. I enjoy Thompson McKenzie. I've been a huge fan of hers since Leave No Trace. Um, I liked her even in some of the films I had some issues with, like Jojo Rabbit, but and Power of the Dog too, which I did enjoy. She had a small role in that. However, she's really on the scene now. This is her, I think, most associated role. I like Anya Taylor-Joy a lot. I think there's a much more interesting role 
than um, a lot of the other ones she's picked, though I do generally enjoy her work. It's nice to see Matt Smith on screen again. Um, he was perfectly serviceable in this, not great. I liked Claffin. I think one of the major detractors in this film in that I think he was underused, as was Stamp. And I enjoyed Dana Rigg a lot. It's a lot of performance. She's always been an exceptional actress, and she was very good in this. I'm happy to talk about some of the attractions, but I think I might let the others get the ball rolling with that. I'd like to hear what you really liked about the movie, if there's anything more you wanted to add, because I feel like... Before, before we go, I dump on the film. turn into like a mega defense of us dumping on the film. Yeah. I like that it showed both the positive and negative aspects of how we perceive interact with dreams and nostalgia. As regards dreams, um, it showed, again, a way that dreams are very fluid and you can engage and you can move and you could your subconscious can take you where you often want to go, but at the same time, it can take you places you don't want to go immediately and you can switch. I like that dreams could also be, like the scenes we saw, the dance scenes, can also be freeing, but at the same time suffocating. The dance sequences were very well staged and that they were very vibrant, but at the same time, there was a constricting feeling of foreboding as we learn more about the situation throughout the film. I think this is the same element with nostalgia. I think a lot of films either treat a heyday, a 60s or 20s, been done in Paris style, like it's this wonderful thing, or alternately like, no, we're going to show you the underbelly of it and how bad it is. I like this film did both. It glamorized the 60s. It showed a very fun version of what we could imagine it was like. Uh, certainly people like myself didn't live through it, but at the same time, it was showed concurrently as opposed to moving from good to bad or bad to good, the things about it that were negative, the good and bad aspects of nostalgia that can act in tandem. I like the fact that it was both critical but forgiving of this era. And I think it's a nuanced approach you don't often see with films. And I think that was mirrored in the style of the film, in how he approached dreams and, again, the exceptional use of mirrors. And the one thing I will say, I, I probably should watch it again before I make this criticism. I appreciate the dream, the rules of the universe in how the effective switch between Mackenzie and Joy was a little unclear to me. Maybe I missed something. I'm going to give the director the benefit of the doubt, given how clearly he structures his films, the internal within that. It was well done and it was consistent. I would have to go back and watch it to make a full opinion. It's something that I would seek to review, but even if there were inconsistencies, it's not something that threw me off because it was a very bright ride. And on that, there was just a great deal of momentum to this film, which even though there were issues as regards how characters are treated in terms of plot, meant I could thoroughly enjoy it. Okay, I felt differently about the way that nostalgia is handled. I feel like by the end of the film, there's meant to be a sense that these two visions of what the 60s are like have been rectified and, and there's been an acknowledgement of the issues with it while still celebrating it. But the way that the film is directed, to me, it very much does feel like going from everything's great about this to like, oh no, there was sexual assault in the 60s. It does to me feel like it flipped from total celebration to total horror. I appreciate there's a transition where you move primarily from one to the other. I mean, part of the problem essentially is that Edgar Wright doesn't know how teenagers behave, right? He thinks that teenagers, especially a lot of teenagers in the way they talk, uh, especially Thompson McKenzie's character, so obsessed with the 60s. 60s fashion, 60s music, just generally, that it just doesn't feel believable. Well, the that's way a problem. She has a very starry-eyed view of what the 60s are like. I had this broader problem with the film where I just didn't believe in the characters in general. I guess because, it's because there's nothing that justifies why she would have that opinion. There's no, there's no actual backstory as to why she is obsessed with the 60s or why she needs to be, other than the fact that maybe Edgar Wright is obsessed with the 60s. And that's why he's just leaning into that to make sure his main protagonist is obsessed with the 60s as well. 
Well, I mean, I don't mind the main character being obsessed with the 60s, and I don't mind us not being given a reason as to why, but some of the ways these things are handled in this film just struck me as unbelievable. This might sound like a really nitpicky criticism, but this woman is in fashion school, right? And everyone else in the fashion school uh, is depicted, with the exception of one person who's a love interest, they're all depicted as basically like bitchy mean girls, and they're all obsessed with the present. And why would anyone be obsessed with the 60s? But I think, has Edgar Wright hung out with many contemporary young people in arts crowds. Being obsessed with the 60s is cool, right? Being obsessed with any past period and bringing retro influences into the present is cool. The internet has made it that all pop culture exists simultaneously and you can show off your taste by picking and choosing. It's a distinguishing feature that would make her stand out, but for some reason it's something that she's bullied for. You could say it's because of the way she acts. I don't know. I think what problematizes for me Edgar Wright's depiction of this transition between nostalgia and a confusion with the present is one, the depiction of the present is so dark as it, you know, like everything's so bad and scary. People are playing techno and doing drugs and having sex at parties, et cetera. It's Thomas and Mackenzie's perspective, sure, but she's this, this mousy little character. And I feel like the film, even though it tries to problematize the 60s, is very much aligned with her perspective that the 60s are great and the present is bad, even though Edgar Wright tries to show otherwise, because there's so much celebration before things turn bad in the recreation of the 60s and the endless needle drops. For me, though, this movie was smothered in needle drops. I, I enjoyed the, them, but I felt like there were way too many. That it's like what the point about war films, that you can't make an anti-war film because the depiction of war itself is so appealing to the senses with cinema that people are going to get something good out of it. The depiction of the 60s is all of Edgar Wright's tricks trying to dazzle you, and that wins out when he, he is contrasting it with a very stacked deck about how bad the present is. So what I get out of this is 60s nostalgia, oh wait, nostalgia is bad. Like, I don't feel like it's fair to the present, and I don't feel like what he shows about what's bad about the 60s wins out over all of the camera swirling, amazing production design, endless needle drop celebration. I think it shows both perspectives of the 60s without going into spoilers. It shows something, elements of fashion and music we want to emulate and elements which are prevalent if something that is also negative. I think it's simply acknowledging that these aspects both existed. I think both are depicted in quite some detail so as to be both celebratory of one and critical of the other. As to a modern day teenager loving and being obsessed with the 60s, exactly someone who goes to art school, it's perfectly plausible to me, as equally is the group of mean girls who aren't as engaged with that era of fashion, but otherwise want to be engaged in this realm. It's strange to me that I often make the point of critiquing modern films that don't taking into account things like cellular technology and mobile phones, but um, it kind of worked here in that this individual is someone who is relatively isolated, wanted to live a life more akin to the 60s, but for the techno scene and a couple of others, you kind of forget that this is actually mostly set in modern day. I didn't find the party scenes, the techno scenes, so I guess scary or fucking or trying to say this is bad and the 60s is good. I think it was just, okay, hey, here's a teenager going out, and because it was from her perspective and she was a little wary of it being an unfamiliar environment, I think that more than anything else just lent it the, okay, 
the foreboding element, which wasn't as overwhelming as the foreboding elements later in the film. So I think on balance, that was good. This film doesn't go for the shock and breed emotional aspects throughout the entire time. And importantly to that, I think this has been wrongly built as a horror. This is a shocker with elements that are just trying to unnerve and unsettle you. I think that's good. I think Wright is a deliberate in that regard. There are elements of there's iconography and design that is used in the world's ending, which is similar here. You see he's refined aspects of it here. The special effects are very good, but where he's used those for comedy in the world's end, it's used for the purposes of being shocking. And I think that's well done. Okay, so the movie's a genre hybrid. I'm fine with it not being straight horror. And I, I agree it's, it's not straight horror throughout. But in regards to the characters that resemble some of those we see in The World's End, there are some horror aspects here for sure, right? And uh, an issue for me is that I didn't find it scary at all. I felt like the right when it comes to the way that these uh, horror figures that end up menacing Thomas and Mackenzie appear, I feel like he's just pushing the same loud button over and over again. The there is one, me... one loud background score that keeps repeating whenever the horror figures appear and that becomes annoying because it's so repetitive after a right. while. So I, I felt like some of these scenes are meant to be tense or scary, but I found them silly. And part of the reason why for me is because this loudness that hits on was was pushing the point the movie past the point of too loud and way too silly when it appeared to me and then it's more repetition of that I'd already felt like this movie was hitting the same notes over and over again about halfway through I was sitting next to Virat and I was saying like enough 60s dance sequences enough needle drops to me, this is an extremely repetitive film that could go about 90 minutes, but goes about two hours. I think the idea is to draw us into the world of Anya Taylor-Joy in the 60s, but so many of these scenes um, until there's the dark turn are the same. And then once we get to the dark turn, it's the same thing of like scary men approach the camera and it's so loud. I mean, part of the problem is the, the flimsy writing. Uh, this film proved that Edgar Wright needs a writing companion more than anything else. He's so good with substance and style, but when it comes to actually grounding that style into an actual cohesive screenplay, he struggles really a lot, especially when, they, so. when that's on his shoulders only. He I think so. Because, yeah, without Simon Pegg, all the, these scripts, I think, have struggled with character. Yeah, uh, especially because, look, there, there are moments in there with uh, Thompson McKenzie's character, there's a hint of past mental illness in the family, which is never explored. And I hate when mental illness is just dropped in, in a movie for, you know, oh, this character is living in, in her own head. She needs to come out of it. Don't get lost in your own head kind of thing. Well, just try to use that less as a product device and more try to do something about it if you're going to drop a hint of mental illness in the film. So I think that was attracting. Also, the whole sequence when Thompson McKenzie is trying to investigate the case in the present seemed utterly silly and ridiculous. Like some of the choices she makes felt so stupid. I'm just like, why would you do that? It just made no sense at all. Okay. Yeah, it took right. away from the experience of the film. Now in its 25th year, the Japanese Film Festival Australia is back in Sydney cinemas until December 5th. Featuring action, romance, mystery, comedy, documentary, and of course, anime, with a special Shuji Teriyama, retrospective included. For more information, visit japanesefilmfestival.net. The Japanese Film Festival Australia, presented by the Japan Foundation Sydney, proudly sponsors to SCR. 
you're listening to the film Fight Club on 2SCR with Glenn Gallagher and Chris Evans and Bright Nehru. I acknowledge the film was loud, but I think mostly in service of uh, the music, which I'll contribute to based on in the moment. However, again, I do not think it's an issue to the extent that it's not trying to make you feel emotional highs every few minutes. It's well judged in terms of when it wants to have an emotional effect, particularly towards the end. And just speaking then as an aside, uh, this does what so many films do today and had a perfect note to end on and just goes on a few minutes later. Very bad, very annoying. Um, as regards needle drops, I think the only song I didn't like, and this was downtown, the simple reason that it's so overplayed. Um, the songs that are otherwise very well chosen, uh, maybe sneak because I listened to the Kinks a lot. And I thought, okay, wait a minute, are these are for songs that I hear all the time? No, no, these are actually songs that aren't as much in the mainstream. And I think they were uh, well chosen for that reason. On the matter of the plot and the investigation, I don't have a matter issue with how the errors interacted, even if it was a little obvious. Me, the problem was that most of the characters are in service of plot elements rather than character development. To an extent, the Terrence Stamp character, um, in particular the Sam Claffin character, who we don't really know, who is inserted purely for plot purposes. And I'd extend this more broadly to the main character herself. Um, there's an issue with a lot of Hollywood writing where a lot of characters are defined simply by they lost a parent or something broad-based like that. Well, yes, it can be a defined aspect, but it's not really about them. I appreciate there's a lot more going on with the Mackenzie character. She's obsessed with the 60s and is a bit of a fish out of water in London, but this still is the anchoring point in the film. And I just feel we've seen this a lot. There's just a lot of lazy character development which is almost purely in service of plot, which I personally think is a major issue with a lot of films writing. I was going to actually say that my broad scale issues with the film, one of the biggest is that the characters seem to be slaves to plot to the extent that if you investigate them further, they don't seem to have much in a life. I, I agree that this extends to the main character. And That's I, so I yeah. The, one of the biggest examples of this is the way that the Terrence Stamp character is handled. A lot of the time, twists and turns in this film, it was a good twist, but in terms of the role it serves in the narrative, I feel like it's mostly there just to manipulate me. And I felt like that as well with the way that Diana Riggs' character is handled towards the end. I can't get into this fully without going into spoilers, so I'll just say that broadly. But something I can talk about a little bit is the love interest. He seems to not have any in internal life. He doesn't, beyond being concerned for the main character, he doesn't sort of have reasons why he's not turned off by her freakiness. And he's always there when the plot needs him to be or to serve the purposes of the plot. I don't think there's consistency in terms of how these characters are imagined. But moving on to a different issue with this movie, which I guess is my main problem with the film. We've avoided talking about it, but this is a film about sexual coercion. Right? This is a film that seems to be very inspired by the Harvey Weinstein case. And this film is about challenging this idea of nostalgia by saying these things happened in the past. This is maybe too broad a thing to say, because maybe he'll convince me otherwise in, in a future film. But coming away from this, I thought, I really don't think Edgar Wright was the right guy, pun not intended, to handle these kinds of subjects. The reason why is... Going back to what I was saying earlier, it's so loud. There's a point in this where he's trying to depict some of the sexual horrors that are going on, as well as just seedy things in the 60s. And the scene came across as really silly to me because it's all of Edgar Wright's whiplash camera moves, fast edits going full throttle. And to me, that was hitting a point of hysterics where he's trying to make us register how serious something is but it felt to me like cheap Hollywood-esque manipulation. It's a very loud film. It's a very 
sledgehammer approach film. And I feel like some of these issues require a little bit more nuance. And when it comes to things like the way the Diana Rigg character is handled towards the end, the films function as a genre film and the twists and turns we expect to see in something like that. And the films working as message making about survivors of sexual trauma and the effects of sexual assault on people are sort of hitting at a weird angle. I feel like this film needed a more nuanced script or needed a more judicious director. You know, know when to use your mallet, know when to use the scalpel. I felt like I was overwhelmed by what this film was doing. And a lot of the time it wasn't making sense to me, the choices that were being made. And I wasn't feeling the horror and the pain because the film was so insistent on it, if that makes sense. I do think that the conclusion to this film is overwrought in that the stylings distract from uh, the message that right otherwise seeks to pervade throughout, and I think does until the elements of the denouement, where it's, I think it's the only really point for me, the flashiness overtakes something where the crux of the film is trying to be what the message and theme is about. But I don't think it's an issue that the film is louder so long as it is not obvious. I don't think it is overly literal. And to that, which, so which I was fine with, I don't have an issue with him broaching the subject and the, the extent that I don't think anything he has any perspective, despite the flashiness of the ending on this is negative or something that is not a good and healthy outlook on these sorts of issues. And obviously, Wright has a very strong perspective that um, such behavior and activities and crimes are bad. And this I would come away with anyone who watches film. This is a broadly accessible, will be a very popular film. I will note that uh, to the film's credit, however, I think a lot of stories that deal with these sorts of issues take the approach of the very interpersonal and very introspective and showing very much personal experience, individual experiences, which is perfectly fine, a very valid approach and a good approach. This film, however, takes, and I think in addition to that, another perspective to speaking about how these sorts of crimes and actions can pervade society and environments. Um, there's an amazing scene where Diana Rigg talks about how in any flat or place in London, it has such storied history because over centuries, so many people have lived there. And the idea that you can't and shouldn't be able to escape and acknowledge a negative history associated with a place that you love and particularly locations you love is a very powerful idea, which I think comes across in this film. So I, I give the film credit for that. I do like that idea of the past that London has and that London has such a storied history and, and thinking about all the things that the buildings have seen. There are things about this film I liked. I just really wanted a more subtle approach. Maybe this wasn't the film to see coming straight out of Sydney Film Festival. But, uh, that's Last Night in Soho. Last Night in Soho. And the last film we want to talk about is Titan, which is the Palms Award winner, which is in cinemas now. Um, I discussed it. However, Chris has had the opportunity now to see Titan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we covered also it. Also, another of... loud film from what I've heard, actually, as well. So, too loud. It is. Um, yeah. But it's very, very French. So, it's loud in different kinds of ways. Yeah, Glenn saw this at Sydney Film Festival. I finally had a chance to catch up with it. I don't really get the hype. And I'm 100% I'm with Glenn in saying that it's not really a Palm d'Or winner. But I'd go further in saying that I didn't really connect with this film. And I, I actually, to my great surprise, because I thought this film was overrated, but was good and showed promise. I ended up preferring Julia Ducano's first film, Raw, because Raw, to me, while it was taking less risks and was more conventional, one could say, the conventionality meant that the themes were able to come together in a way that they didn't for me. 
So this film opens brilliantly. There's an amazing transition between this opening scene and a time skip into the present day where there's this erotic dance scene around cars, right? Great filmmaking, great momentum. I'm on board. But as the film goes on, I didn't feel momentum from one scene to the next. To me, it feels like a movie made up of a bunch of different, somewhat disjointed ideas. You could say it's a somewhat music video-esque in the way that it seemed like it's bouncing between visual concept to visual concept, as opposed to carrying me forward on this story. And carrying you forward on this story is important with the protagonist we've chosen because to me, she's a deep unsympathetic character. This film sets itself up to fail by giving you a slasher character and it's essentially, I would say, a story about a slasher who we can argue about how seriously we're meant to take the characterization and how much we're meant to view all of this as just kind of metaphorical. But she's introduced to us doing a bunch of murders, right? Pretty early on. And uh, it, it's about her being redeemed by love, we could say, to some extent. It's about a lot of things, but I was never fully sold on that. She's a character who basically never speaks. Vincent Lindon, who is a fantastic, soulful actor, does a lot of heavy lifting to make the emotional side of this character work as this kind of surrogate father, a man who believes he's her father and acts as such, and he believes that she's his son. This is a very strange narrative, but I was never really on board with this emotional trajectory. I was never on board that I should care about this character. I found it confusing the rift between reading the murders and the, the way this character is at the fringes of society in a literal versus metaphorical way. The film is constantly demanding you to read it as a metaphor, but there's so many ideas butting up against each other that as I watched it, I thought, what is this film really saying? What is this film trying to be? Do all of these strange shock turns actually add up to anything? Or is it a person just delving into a bunch of Cronenberg-esque images and sexual themes, putting them in a blender and trying to mess with the audience? Am I being too harsh? I'll reiterate my biggest issue with this film that the secondary character, as Chris alluded to, is just so much more interesting than the main character, yeah. notwithstanding the stylistic elements which have been at the center of publicity around this film on raw versus Titan, i preferred the narrative aspects of raw but the again the stylistic and directions the graphic directions of this film goes which are very distinct i appreciate it for that i think they're very different films. i think they're actually quite difficult to compare a matter of the main character being sympathetic i agree she's not a sympathetic figure i think the director misjudges the extent to which the murders events that render her unsympathetic are going to be perceived by the audience as hyper-stylized, as overly graphic to that effect, but also as more stylistically anchored than plot relevant. But the fact is, these are elements of the film that are displayed, unlike some of the more fantastic elements, quite explicitly, they factor majorly into the plot in a way that audiences, I think, will fairly interpret as being overly literal as opposed to more predominantly figurative. Yeah. And therefore, I think it's a misjudgment, of the, which renders character mostly unsympathetic. That's it. I don't think that the symbolic aspects of this film work together well. As I said, I feel like the metaphorical aspects are sort of confused and they become more confusing when you read them in light of, if anything, what we're supposed to read in this film literally. Much has been spoken about of the woman has sex with Carr, a thing I wouldn't spoil, but you know, it's all everyone who I mentioned the film to seems to know about. Just a word of warning. If you go in expecting this character to really have sex with a car, you're not going to get that. 
it's a sort of like a dream sequence in the context of the narrative and you get a, a hydraulic car bouncing and then a person bound up seemingly in some kind of bdsm context within the car right yeah but to speak of, of that scene with this hydraulic car bouncing shot from a distance it plays like a joke it's okay for it to be a joke but then as the narrative goes on it seems like that was a moment of incredibly heavy import and uh, so the consequences of that with our, our character seems to be pregnant on some level and and uh, leak oil. And that stuff is treated very seriously by the narrative. This to me points to some of the issues of what's metaphorical, what's literal and tonal control that are going on here. Like it plays like it's a gag. It's so ridiculous as, um, to, to witness. I, I know woman has sex with car sounds ridiculous on paper, but it's hard to move past that. And the way it's depicted, was this meant to be a joke? I don't know. Like, am I, what am I meant to take seriously? Is this whole film just a weird joke? What am I meant to take out of this? Yeah. I, you know, I was not satisfied with it, sorry. I think, I think it's a great discussion point. Um, I was never bored for reasons I discussed today and last week. There I do think it's overrated. Right? Not boring. I just think it's an overrated film. I'm more over, I, I, I don't think we'll be so critical of being overrated had it not won the Palm d'Or. But yeah, yeah I, I, like any given year at the Underground Film Festival, I'd recommend this over and above any number of other films. Now, any other, a number of other narrative. Features. If I can speculate to wrap up, I think this film one is trying a lot of things and it's daring, and two, it could be viewed as being like a feminist film. Some people have read it as as a trans film, but I don't really think it is, and I think it, it seems incoherent if you try and read it that way. But I think Spike Lee's jury at Khan wanted to reward someone for doing something daring and delving into politically contentious issues at the moment. But I don't think this film adds up to anything. And I suspect it because it's so time to the moment in terms of the aesthetics, it's going to look quite dated in 10 or 20 years. But, you know, I'm not God. I can't say that. We'll see. So that is Tan and Last Time in Soho. We've discussed a number of quite important issues in the course of the discussion. And if you'd like to discuss this, these sorts of issues with anyone or address anything related to this with a supportive uh, group, 1-800-RESPECT is an excellent service. The number is 1-800-737-732. That's 1-800-737-732, a great service. That's 1-800-RESPECT. We'll be back next week talking about Dune and the power of the dog. This has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Varat Nehru. Have a wonderful night. Stay safe and enjoy movies.